Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you for you pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails were like claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. Before we jump in, let's ask God to help us during this time. Our great God and heavenly Father, you have spoken by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, O Lord, that you would, by that same Holy Spirit, make our hearts receptive to the word of truth. Show us Jesus Christ in all his glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may not be a golf fan, but you probably know the name Tiger Woods. I don't think I've ever watched a round of golf before, but I know who Tiger Woods is because I ate a lot of cereal, and I remember seeing his face on the cereal box. Tiger Woods is a legend of sort. When he was 19 years old, he played in the Masters Open, and he tied for the 41st spot. He was the only amateur to make the cut. The next year, he turned pro and signed a deal with Nike. And in the year 2000, he secured his place as one of the greatest golfers of all time by achieving six consecutive wins on the PGA Tour. Tiger Woods, through the course of his career, would, be the, would hold the position of the greatest golfer on the planet for 683 weeks, more than double the time of anyone else. Yet in 2008, what many have called the downfall of Tiger Woods began. It started with knee problems and a surgery that put him out of the 2009 season. But in 2009, something even more damaging to his career and personal life would emerge. Beginning with the National Enquirer story, reports of Tiger Woods' serial infidelities began being released. Later, he would crash his car into a fire hydrant, and many people began suspecting some kind of substance abuse was happening. After he lost his major promotional deals with GM and Gatorade, he wrote a letter not only to his wife, but to the world. 
He said, I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was wrong. I was foolish. Unfortunately, this was not a turning point for the world's once greatest golfer. He would continue to struggle with relational conflicts, divorce, injuries, and drug addiction. He would continue to play golf, but he could never achieve his former glory. Many began to ask, is it not time for Tiger Woods to hang up the golf clubs for good? He was washed up. He was a shell of himself. Today we're reading about the Tiger Woods of the Babylonian, Babylonian kings. The great, the awesome, the world champion, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is in the prime of his game. He is this big, beautiful tree that extends across the earth. He has provided the, ba- the Pax Babylonia, as he might describe it. In verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace, saying perhaps to himself, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What we have in this chapter is a cautionary tale about pride. But more than that, it is a statement about ultimate reality and the way things truly are. So what I want to do this morning is I want to zero in on the two main figures in this story, Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. I want us to see the faithfulness of Daniel in this difficult situation, and I want us to see the humbling, the humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And by looking at these two characters, these two individuals, I want us to flesh out some of the implications from the fact that the true tree, the true king, the only sovereign of heaven and earth, is the Lord himself. So let's consider Daniel together. I don't know about you, but I don't like being the bearer of bad news. Uh, For example, I don't like quitting jobs for good reasons or for bad reasons. And the most embarrassing case for me was when I quit my first job in high school outside of working for my dad. You see, I worked with my dad during the summers and he had a flooring business. He would install floors in people's homes. And so in the summer, I would work with my dad, and he would have me do a lot of the unskilled labor because I didn't have any skills as it related to laying floors. And so I found the work to be a bit boring and grueling at times. So one summer, I decided that I wanted to do anything else besides help my dad with this. And so I told him I was going to apply at a job. And so I sent my application in, and I uh, got a job at Subway. The embarrassing thing was that it only lasted one week. I did not like working at Subway. I did not like the smell. I did not like the customers much. And so I decided that my time at Subway had come to an end. And I remember walking in to tell my boss, the one who just trained me uh, a week ago, that my time at Subway was over. And I remember feeling really awkward about it and embarrassed. Uh, But I knew it only lasted a moment, and so I did it, and then I left. Well, Daniel in this situation doesn't have the option of quitting. The magicians were not able to interpret the dream, and the king knows that Daniel can do it. And it was an awkward scenario because what Daniel has to interpret is really bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19 says that he was kind of dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. But eventually, Daniel interprets it for him, and he basically says to the king four things. 
First, he says, basically, I want this to be for your enemies and not for you. That's verse, 20, that's verse 19. The second thing he says is, you are this big, beautiful tree. That's verse 22. And then he says, thirdly, you are going to be chopped down. That's verse 25. And the fourth thing he says is you need to turn from your sin. You need to repent so you can avoid this impending judgment. That's verse 27. You know, I think we who are Christians can really uh, sympathize with Daniel here. Because we have beliefs about the future that dismay us at times. We have beliefs that alarm us at night. Because God comes with a word of judgment, not only to the kings of nations, but to all people. We all individually have to reckon with the reality that God rules heaven and earth. You know, some people throughout history uh, have delighted in proclaiming the condemnation of God. You know, maybe you would point to the fire and brimstone preachers of a previous generation. Maybe you read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. To be honest, I think those guys get a worse rap than they deserve. They were godly men. But I am sure there were some abuses. There were those who relished in the proclamation of divine judgment on people. But this is obviously not what Daniel is doing here. Daniel, as he presents this controversial revelation to the king, he is not delighting. What is he doing? So I think we can learn from Daniel as we look at his example and also by asking, how does he have the courage to follow through? So what does Daniel do? He speaks with love. Speaking with love means to speak the truth with the best interest of the person in mind. You want them to hear the truth and you want them to align themselves with this ultimate reality for their own good. Warren Raresby was right when he said that truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. Or as Tim Keller puts it, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports us and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Sentimentality and harshness is what Daniel avoids. He avoids harshness by effectively saying, like, I hope this is not for you, king. I hope this is for your enemies. He tells the king he doesn't want him to go down this path to judgment and destruction. And not only this, he affirms that the king and the kingdom are impressive. He says, you are this big and beautiful tree. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. But at the same time, he avoids sentimentality. He does not hide the truth to stay on good terms with the king or to preserve the king's delusion. He doesn't even hide the truth to protect his own body. He says, you are going to be chopped down, king. He tells him what he's doing is wrong. The king is thinking that the greatness of his kingdom is self-achieved and for his own glory, when in reality the kingdom was given to King Nebuchadnezzar in the providence of God for God's purposes and for the good of others. And so he counsels the king to repent, to turn from his sin, to avoid the impending judgment. Verse 27, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, 
that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel calls it as God sees it. And he does it with a genuine concern for the king. And even though you might remember that it was King Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem, who kidnapped Daniel and his friends, and he was the one who was living in sin and oppressing his people. Last quarter at Northwestern, we had an event called What Are You Waiting For? An Interfaith Dialogue on the Messiah. This was a Northwestern event. There were three speakers. There was a Muslim chaplain, a Jewish rabbi, and then my colleague in RUF, the undergrad minister, Reverend Chris Colquitt. And as you know, each of us have different views on the Messiah. Muslims believe Jesus was basically a teacher who did miracles. Uh, Jewish people believe that Jesus was a false messiah. But we who are Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man, the one born of a virgin, the only one who can restore us into right relationship with the Father. And I thought Chris did an exemplary job of proclaiming the exclusive truth claims about Jesus Christ. You know, he could have gotten up that day and said, look, we agree on a lot of things. We agree on some important stuff. So let's just talk about those things instead. No, he got up and he said, we disagree about the most important person in human history. And he did this not out of a desire simply to defeat his other speakers. He did it out of a love for God and a love for his neighbors. This is what Daniel's doing. He's going in there and he's not going to win one for the home team or to sacrifice truth in the service of himself. He tells the truth. So how could he do it? Well, he could do it because he knew that what he was saying was indeed true and that God was and is the sovereign ruler of the universe. This is the theme of the book of Daniel. God is supreme over all kingdoms. Daniel ultimately knew that God was king and that it was to God that he owed his highest loyalty. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. But as the proverb says... The heart of a king is like a stream of water in the hands of God. He directs it wherever he wills. Daniel trusted God with the consequences of his obediently speaking the truth because he knew no matter what, God was in control. But this was not easy. You see, the challenge was that the reality of God's rule was something hard to see at the time. If you remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed The people of Israel were in exile. They were under the thumb of Babylon. So Daniel had to walk by faith. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is a conviction of things unseen. Daniel knew God was ruling, but it was hard to see. So he had to walk by faith. Like Moses, who by faith refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but preferred mistreatment with the people of God, Daniel now refuses to stay on the good side of the king and opens himself up for disapproval. Daniel could speak. He could act because he had entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So this is what God is calling us to. God is calling us to be truth tellers. So what does it look like? It looks like telling the truth to our brothers and our sisters in Christ and to our neighbors. If you see them heading in a direction that is going to be harmful for themselves or for others, 
you do not remain silent. You speak up. If you see a brother of Christ begin flirting with an illicit or damaging relationship, you lovingly speak honestly and directly with them. It looks like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Fundamentally, it is speaking the truth whenever God gives you the platform to do so and leaving the consequences to him. So there are temptations, I believe, that are fronted in each age. Or maybe they differ from personality to personality. Maybe for you the temptation would be to speak the truth harshly. But for me, and this may be true for you, is the temptation for me is towards sentimentality, to hide the truth. I have students ask me occasionally, you know, what if I don't believe in Jesus? And I want to say, oh, you'll be fine, it's not a big deal. But if I believe the gospel, this is not true. Outside of God's mercy offered in Jesus Christ, you are not fine. Because the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar is our judgment unless we reckon with the reality that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And he has sent to us the revelation of Jesus Christ, the King who sits on the heavenly throne, the one to whom we're all held accountable. All right, so that's Daniel. Let's look at King Nebuchadnezzar. So apparently he did not say to Daniel, off with his head. But neither did he listen to Daniel's counsel. Uh, Twelve months later, he's outside standing on the roof of his palace, and he's bragging to himself. And then verse 31 says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. The word was immediately fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast of the field. He didn't transform into one, but he began taking on these characteristics. In any case, this was a supernatural act of God. He was driven from among men and eating grass, as God said. One scholar comments, a man who thinks he is a god must become a beast to learn that he's merely a human being. And Nebuchadnezzar does learn, verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. His kingdom is restored to him, his greatness, greatness is added to him, but Nebuchadnezzar is a changed man. In the beginning, we, we spoke of Tiger Woods. And you might have noticed that he reemerged in the news recently. A few months ago, he won another Masters, landing in the top spot for the first time since his precipitous fall. I googled his name, and a video came up in Spanish. It's the first thing I saw, and it was simply titled, Tiger Woods, La Resurrection. One golf commentator made an interesting point about Tiger Woods of then and the Tiger Woods of now. He said, in the days when Tiger Woods was dominating the sport, you would never hear him referring to he and his caddy as we, like he does now. In Woods' mind, he was the one who hit the shots, 
He was the one who put in the work and reaped the rewards. And it was an attitude that served him quite well as he won the 14 majors with that mindset. But after his final tap-in that clinched his 15th major last Sunday at the Masters, we once, we once again saw the new softer side of Woods in an exchange with his caddy, Joe LaCava. An emotional Woods could be seen telling LaCava, we did it. We did it. Something that would have not ever been said by the Tiger of old. LaCava himself would say, we got to share in the moment and smile at one another. It was such an achievement, a proud moment more than anything. Nothing, could be need, nothing needed to be said because, he, because we could read each other's mind. Through our humbling fall of grace, people have been saying, religious and non-religious alike, that Tiger Woods' story is nothing less than a redemption story. The contrast between Nebuchadnezzar before and after his fall is great. Before his fall, Nebuchadnezzar looked at his massive accomplishments and he said, look how awesome I am. Look at this palace for my majesty. After his fall, he publishes this self-effacing letter that exalts the king of kings, the one who sets up kingdoms and tears kingdoms down, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar seems to have, in some sense, aligned himself with reality. And I think we can assume that he stopped oppressing people for a while. In other words, this alignment with reality translated into good news for the people who were under him. Where God's rule is enacted, peace and righteousness are established. Apart from God's rule, there is chaos, oppression, and hell. This is a transcendent reality. And as we're thinking of Nebuchadnezzar, the author is preparing us for what's coming later. The book of Daniel later directs us to a time in which the kingdom of God begins to break into this visible world through one called the Son of Man. This is God's king, who, as you will see, is divine himself. The author is contrasting the temporary kingdom of this world with the everlasting kingdom of God. He's contrasting the kings of this world, this King Nebuchadnezzar, with God's chosen king. And we have the benefit of seeing this contrast all the more brightly after the coming of Jesus. You know, Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. He was God's chosen one. He was the Messiah. And even while considering Nebuchadnezzar, the author wants us to be thinking of him, the true and coming king. Greater than the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar of then and now is the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and King Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar was involuntarily humbled. Jesus chose humility. Nebuchadnezzar used his power in the service of himself. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Nebuchadnezzar was the king who stopped oppressing. Jesus became the oppressed one. Nebuchadnezzar wore a crown of gold. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. And he did this for you. He did this so that you might enter into the kingdom of God that is without end. Until we, until we see the glorious reality of the reign of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension, we cannot follow in Daniel's footsteps. Until we know that we have something better than the approval of earthly kings, we have the approval of God found in Jesus Christ, we cannot be faithful. Until we know that our futures are secure at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. We cannot make the sacrifices of our temporary privileges in the service of truth. Until we see how truly good it is that Jesus reigns, we cannot have the courage it takes to live faithfully, and it takes great courage to do so.
How do we get there? We get there in a similar way to Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of God is upside down in this way. When Jesus came, he said he came for the sick, not the healthy. The poor, not the wealthy. He came for the cowardly, like Peter, who denied him three times. And when he came, it was the outcasted tax collectors that received him, and not the Pharisees. To receive Christ is to admit that all the good things that we have ever done were corrupted because we did those believing that they were self-achieved and for our own glory. It is to go low in the grass like Nebuchadnezzar and to admit your sin and your idolatry. It is to recognize that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. It is to come to Jesus saying, Nothing in my hands I bring, no success, no righteousness, only to your cross I cling. And it is is in this place that we find mercy and grace. And it's actually in this place that we are lifted up to reign with Jesus. There's good news this morning coming to you from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God is able. If God can redeem proud Nebuchadnezzar, he can redeem you. This is an invitation. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, as Daniel prayed in the time of confession, we like to compare ourselves to others. We do that to feel good about ourselves, and sometimes we do it to feel bad about ourselves. But Lord, you are awesome, and you are so highly exalted, so far above any human being. And what is the marvelous thing is that you have, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, brought us into your family. You have made us sons and daughters of the King. You have placed honor and glory upon us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the power to reject the praise of this world and to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In response to God's word...